All right. Good morning, everyone. Oh, come on, let's try that again. Good morning. All right. My name is Jeremy Edberg. I am the CEO and founder of MinOps. Uh, I was previously with Netflix and with Reddit. And today I'm here to talk to you about serverless. So in the beginning, we had servers. And then we had virtual machines. And then we moved to containers. And then we moved into Lambda and serverless. So what was great about physical machines? Well, not a whole lot. They took a long time to rack up, and uh, they were slow to get deployed, and they lasted for a really long time, and they weren't very friendly to having lots of different languages or operating systems or anything like that. So then we went to virtual machines, and we solved some of those problems. We could deploy them fairly quickly. Uh, they were kind of, you know, they were good for multi-tenancy. They were polyglot friendly, and uh, you could deploy them in minutes, and they would just live for a couple weeks to years, depending on how long you kept them around. Then we moved up the abstraction layer. We got to containers, so it's even faster to deploy, even more lightweight, more multi-tenancy, more polyglot friendly. Deploys in seconds, lives for hours, minutes, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. And now we're at serverless. So what is serverless? Serverless is really the smallest level of compute. It's, it's the end of that abstraction. There really isn't much farther we can go with that abstraction. The, the function is the unit of deployment. Uh, you deploy them in seconds. They run for seconds to minutes. Uh, extremely friendly to lots of different languages. Very high multi-tenancy, et cetera. And there's a whole lot of choices in the serverless ecosystem. There's Amazon's ecosystem. There's a whole bunch of other services out there that do lots of other things. You can mix and match them, uh, put them together, or you can just stick with uh, Amazon's ecosystem. And Amazon's actually been doing the serverless thing for a long time. Some of their very first products, SQS, S3, these are all part of the serverless ecosystem. And Lambda is like the glue. Lambda is the glue that binds it all together. Some of the benefits of Lambda, you don't have to, you, there's no servers to manage. You get continuous scaling. Uh, you don't pay for any of your idle time. It's built in 100 millisecond increments. But really, the whole point here is that Lambda is a core component of modern software. Whether you're using nothing but Lambda or just a tiny little bit of it, it's, it's the glue. It helps you bring from one to the next between different servers and serverless and so on. So what is serverless anyway, right? There's still servers, obviously. It's, there's, no, it's not the cl magic cloud. Uh, but what it means is that you don't have to manage them anymore. You don't have access to them either, so you give up a, a little bit of control in exchange for not having to deal with the problems. And those are the old Reddit servers, actually, under the old Reddit fish tank. So, so <clears throat> how do you decide, right? We've got EC2, where there are virtual machines. The machine is the unit of scale. We've got containers, ECS, application is the unit of scale, Lambda, where the function is the unit of scale. And so we ask ourselves these questions. You know, do I want to configure machines, have control over networking, et cetera? Or do I want to just worry about applications and application configuration and a server configuration? Or do I want to just check in my code and run it and give up some of that control? And then a big question that comes up, especially amongst enterprises, is what happens if I buy my own software? How do I get into serverless? Uh, and the answer is, well, you can still put your software in a container and then use Lambda as a way to bring data in and out and to control how you, the different pieces of software that you bought work together 
things like that. So even if you're buying all of your software, serverless is still a useful thing. Serverless is really about speeding up your deployment by removing the management overhead. The idea is to really just get down into the code and just do code. So let's take a quick journey through uh, deployment history. Back in the 80s, we had the mainframes. They cost a ton of money, and it took years to get them. And if you got a mainframe for a product that didn't work out, the company usually went bankrupt. So, you know, not great for rapid deployment. Uh, in the 90s, we got to the client-server thing. Uh, so costs went down by an order of magnitude. You could deploy a lot faster. Uh, cost of failure was just a C-level in their department disappearing. Then we got into Agile in the 2000s. Uh, how many of you love and remember Agile? Oh, come on. You just don't want to admit it. <clears throat> but uh, you know, the cost of failure was just uh, a product manager's reputation. We had this idea of the waterfalls where the product manager comes up with an idea, the developer writes it, it goes to QA, then ops has to deploy what they wrote without any help, and then the BI analytics people tell you if it worked. But the important part is as we've been moving along, the cost and risk always kept going down while the speed of deployment went up. And that's always been the goal, has been to reduce our, our costs and increase our innovation speed. So we started with this idea of having the single deployment pipeline, where all the developers check into one pipeline, and it creates an application, and you had to wait for the build cycle or the release engineer. Uh, and if there was a problem, you had to go and hope, you know, give a beer to the release engineer and hope they would push your bug fix out before anyone noticed. So it wasn't great. It was kind of a pain for a developer. And then we came up with this idea of having multiple pipelines, right? So we call this microservices. And different developer groups would check into different pipelines, and they would all merge up together to create an application, something like that. But now we have this idea of services, right? So we have all these different pipelines committing to all of these different services. And Lambda is really sort of the, the, the peak of that. So now you don't, only, you don't have to all commit into the same set of services. Some of you could have some people running on this service, and some people are on Lambda, and some are on uh, you know, some other service outside of Amazon, whatever it is, and it all ties together into one application, which is great for your developers, because all they have to do is write their code and push it to wherever they want. It's terrible for your DevOps engineers, but you know that's their problem. I can say that. I'm a DevOps engineer. And so this is a very standard pattern that a lot of companies follow, this pattern from monolithic code to microservices. Uh, Netflix did it, all of those companies there, where you start with the monolithic code, and then you break it into a couple of services, and then you keep breaking it down. And eventually, you've, you're like Netflix, and you have hundreds of microservices. And then what do you do, right? Well, the first question is, why are you even doing this? And the answer is because it works really well for these small distributed teams, right? As we get into these bigger, or these smaller teams, the two pizza team, if you will, it's a lot easier for just a few engineers to work on one service. They don't even have to talk to the engineers if they don't want to. The API is the contract, so it's great. Uh, some people call this the cloud native method. So it allows you to scale independently. Each service can scale up and down as needed. So that gives you a nice level of flexibility. Here's an example of, uh, of a microservices organization, right? This is the Netflix API. So there's a bunch of services. Talks to an API. 
the quest goes in, it fans back out, and so different teams are responsible for different groups of services. And each one of those is a different VP or a different uh, product group or something like that. And so what's nice about microservices is that it ties into the organization. The two are very married together, the way that you run your engineering and the way that you run your code. And so what this gives you a nice benefit of being highly aligned, loosely coupled. So you have these small teams of engineers and they just have the API. They don't even have to speak the same language because as long as they have that API, it works out. So it gives you this nice benefit of distributed teams. And it also means that your developers can own end-to-end -end their part of the product. They don't have to understand the whole product and how it all fits together. They just need to understand their one piece and the parts that talk to and interact with their one piece. But the problem is, when you have all these microservices, you have to build this platform that has all of these different moving parts with deployment and monitoring and alerting and network configuration, service discovery, and all of that. And mature companies, I've found, actually spend about 25% of their time on this process, where just building that infrastructure to run their infrastructure, which means that 25% of their engineering is going towards something that never actually helps their product. It just helps deploy their product. And they're all building the same thing. They're all building these same microservices platforms. So they're all wasting the same amount of time. And it's hard, right? There's a lot of pieces to that. And so, you know, they stop when it's just good enough. Because why waste the time to keep going? As soon as it works well enough to deploy their product, they stop. So none of them are great. So why should we go serverless? What is the benefit of serverless over this? Serverless is still going to be a microservices architecture. Uh, in fact, some people even call it a nanoservices architecture. But what's nice is that most of that trouble goes away. Most of it is just taken care of for you. So you don't have to worry about building that platform. And the parts you do have to worry about, some of it is even already taken care of part way. Uh, like security, for example, you get a nice little boost of security just by the fact that the lambdas tend to only run for seconds or minutes at most. So even if you have a security flaw in your code and someone finds a way in, they only have a few seconds to take advantage of that. So, you know, it's security by obscurity, but it helps a little bit and gives you at least a little bit more of a security system. So if we're looking at a good microservices architecture, we've got lots of services running, each with their own data store. Uh, if you're crossing data stores, then you don't really have microservices. You just have a headache and a mess because you're going to have problems with that. And when you're managing a good microservices platform, you've got all of these different things you have to worry about, your containers and your frameworks and your web servers and all of that. And what do all of those have in common? Well, servers, server management. You have to manage all of your servers. So with servers come a lot of headaches. They come to access control and utilization and patching and figuring out the right size and all of that different stuff. But with serverless, it all goes away. We end up with a different set of problems, but some of them are taken care of, so they're fully managed, continuous scaling, and so on. So in summary, basically, serverless equals microservices minus the management. Now, that doesn't mean that all of the problems are solved. There's still problems, of course. Uh, you still have to worry about you, most of the distributed systems problems. 
Uh, in fact, most distributed system problems are magnified when you're in this type of environment because you've got a lot more services typically since each function is its own service. So let's talk about all of that stuff. We'll do it in a little bit. But first, what does Lambda do for you? They scale automatically. Uh, you can trigger it with an API. Uh, it ensures that the function is executed. It has logging and monitoring built in, uh, and the pricing model is really easy. So the monitoring, by default, they give you a bunch of CloudWatch metrics, uh, invocation duration, errors, things like that. So that's all just built right in. Uh, the pricing model is you just pick a memory amount, and then network and CPU are scaled accordingly. So all you have to do is say how much memory your function is going to need. And you don't really need to read this page, but the important part here is uh, this is the cost of running uh, Lambda for a month with about 3 million requests, or 1.2 per second. And if you look, that that cost is actually a little bit less than a T2 small. So if you're doing 3 million requests, 1.2 a second, and you do it on Lambda instead of a server, you're going to save money. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you get to pay per request. It's billed in 100 millisecond increments. Uh, there's no request charges. There's no minimums. Uh, there's no per device fees. So it's actually a really simple model. Uh, my entire company is built on Lambda and serverless, and we haven't actually paid anything yet because we've stayed in the free tier. So that's how cheap it is. <clears throat> so how do you use Lambda? Let's actually get into the guts now and talk about how we use Lambda. <clears throat> so we start by authoring our code. Uh, we have you, their AWS SDK is built right in, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, you can use Node.js and Python and, and now C Sharp uh, are supported. Yeah. <clears throat> I used to tell people the one, uh, the one thing about, that was better about Azure was that they had C Sharp, and now I can't say that anymore. So uh, <clears throat> you can bring any Java language or JVM-based language as well. Uh, you can bring any library you need to. You can even bring files along, not just libraries, but images or SQL-like databases, as I'll show you in a little bit, things like that. So it's pretty flexible. And you even get access to slash temp on the box. Then you have to choose an event source. So Lambda can be triggered a lot of different ways. You can see there's, uh, I think, 15, 16 on there now. Uh, I just had to update the slide a few days ago because they had added more triggers. They're constantly adding more triggers. Uh, the most common triggers are API Gateway, uh, S3, or other Lambdas, but there's lots of other choices, SES, your Echo, and so on. You all have an Echo now, so you can all do that. Uh, and then you choose your resources, like I said, so you have to choose your memory, and then everything else is scaled with it. Uh, and then you choose your authorization model, so you have to choose whether you're going to use their default VPC or you're going to break the glass and put it into your own VPC. Uh, so we'll talk about the pros and cons of that in a, in a little, right here, actually. Uh, so the pros and cons are that you get, uh, you know, if you don't break the glass, everything sort of just works, but it's still in a VPC. If you put it in your own VPC, you get access to your own internal resources, uh, but you do need to worry about things like ENIs and the route table and the security and things like that. Uh, and then you deploy your code. So there's a couple ways to do that. You can use Amazon's GUI, or hang yourself. Uh, you can upload it directly to S3, or you could use a third-party tool. 
And so when you're using, a, if you're not using a third-party tool, you need to take care of all of the, these different parts. You gotta write your code, you have to zip it up, you have to get all of your IAM roles correct, set all of your permissions correctly, test the function, etc. So the solution here is if you use a tool, then you're gonna get a lot of that taken care of for you. And there's a bunch of tools out there. Here's just a sampling of some. Uh, each one of them has their pros and cons. Uh, we've got uh, Kappa, which was written by the same person who wrote Bodo. So if you're into Python, that could be a good one, although even the Kappa author now says use Apex. Uh, Apex is really smooth, polished, and I'm gonna show you a demo of Apex in a little bit here. Uh, and I'm also gonna show you a demo of Kappa. Uh, there's other ones, there's serverless, which used to be called JAWS, open source framework. Uh, that one is nice because it uses cloud formation. So if you're already using cloud formation, it ties in really nicely. Oh, and Apex is really great if you're already using Terraform. Uh, and then uh, there's Chalice, which is from Amazon itself. So uh, Chalice is really great if you wanna write Python REST APIs with API Gateway. Uh, that's the one thing it's good at. Uh, and then there's Serverless Express, and that's also from Amazon, and so that's, that's growing. The point here, though, is that uh, there is still some work to be done on tooling and deployment around Lambda, management around Lambda. There's a lot of these tools that are all under active development and growing and getting better, uh, but there's still some work to be done there. And I mentioned the API Gateway. So API Gateway and Lambda work really well together. They're a great way to build a REST API for the web. Uh, so Amazon Gateway gives you the, the benefits of a unified API. You get the DDoS protection, uh, as mentioned in the keynote the other day. They actually have two levels of it now, but you even got it before. Uh, and you can authenticate your request. So it basically makes sure that your lambdas don't get overwhelmed and sort of is the gateway, hence the name, to, to your lambdas. So let's talk about some lambda use cases. When would you actually use lambda? There's the application backend use case where you can use it to drive your application. Uh, the data processing use case. So if you know, remember from the triggers page, there's a lot of different triggers around things like Amazon Kinesis and SNS, things like that, so you can use it for data processing. Uh, command and control, so how many of you have that like one special cron box that does all of those, those crons? Man, nobody wants to admit to bad practices anymore. <clears throat> but uh, you can replace all of those with Lambda, which is great. That's actually what Netflix is using um, command and control for, as I found out recently or I mean Lambda 4, uh, and really it's great for any functional or event-based system. So anytime you have a system where something happens and you do something, which is a lot of your systems probably, Lambda is a good, good use case for it. So let's talk about a simple example, a data processing example. Let's say you have files that you wanna upload to S3 and once they get there you wanna compress them Super easy to just set up a trigger. So S3 will trigger the Lambda. The Lambda will grab the file, run your compression, upload it back to S3, and now you've got your file there. You didn't have to spin up any servers or anything like that. It just was taken care of when the file got there. Lambda is great for serverless websites. So recently there's been a big trend of running static net uh, websites. Uh, that's actually a different service called Netlify that's up there in the corner. and uh, it was great, you could run your static content, but you couldn't do anything like have comments or anything like that. So with Lambda, you, you can do an API gateway call, and with some little JavaScript on your static website, you call out, you trigger a Lambda, it stores in a Dynamo, and you've got comments on your static website. 
So again, you don't have to do any servers, you don't have to worry about scaling, anything like that. You just, it's sort of all magic and just works. Here's a little bit more complicated example of the API gateway uh, where you've got mobile apps and websites and other command line services all talking uh, through CloudFront to the API gateway. The API gateway is actually doing some caching for you because it can do that. It's putting logs into CloudWatch. It's talking to Lambda functions in the back end. It's talking to EC2 servers in the back end. So it's extremely flexible around what you can do with Gateway and Lambda and all of that. The mobile backend use case is kind of the same. You've got your mobile. Uh, let's say you want to send notifications because you're making it the next Tinder clone. And so, you know, you've got the, the person does a thing and it triggers a Lambda, which puts a bunch of items into the SNS queue to send notifications to all of the people nearby. Uh, another use case is the real-time analytics engineer, uh, engine. So you've got your, say, your Twitter stream. You're watching the hashtag reInvent, for example. Uh, and every time you see that, you put it into Kinesis. Kinesis can trigger a Lambda on every event that comes in. So Kinesis triggers your Lambda to do some processing, stored in Dynamo or whatever, and then you provide a website to the user that's, you know, that's so they can look at the, the trends and the analytics and all of that stuff. Uh, and then and this uh, example is important because it points out that you don't have to trigger just one Lambda function from an event. You can trigger multiple functions. So let's say you're doing some uh, live streaming, right, and you have upload into CloudFront, it drops the, main, the big file into S3. And when you're doing video streaming, you have to transcode all of your files to all the different devices that you want to support. So you can trigger a bunch of Lambda functions all at the same time. You can trigger your high quality copy and your 480 copy and your 1080 and your 360 and all, so on. And if you actually look at the bottom, you'll see that one of the things that I've triggered is a third party thumbnailing service. So you can do all of this, you can glue it all together all of those lambdas are going to run. They're all going to drop their files back in S3. Uh, and then CloudFront Streaming will stream all of that back out to all of the devices using the correct codecs and correct files. So the important message here is you can have a, a one-to-many trigger. One event can trigger many things happening in parallel. So let me get into uh, a demo here. So I wrote a little program. I'm an engineer, but I own a company, which means I'm in charge of naming products and companies. But I'm not good at that, so as an engineer, I wrote a program to do it for me. Uh, so I uh, have this program that basically I took an n-gram database from Google, and it generates English-looking words. You can give it prefixes, suffixes. And so this is a Kappa example. So here's what the Kappa YAML file looks like. Uh, it has some environment variables there, and you can actually go very deep into those variables. You can define entire uh, schemas of permissions if you really want to. Uh, but the important part is that last section at the bottom. <clears throat> you give it a name, you say how much memory you're going to use, what your default timeout is going to be, and that's pretty much all you have to do. <clears throat> We've got the code itself. So there's more code to it than that, but this is the main handler. So when you define your lambdas, you tell uh, lambda, this is the function that you call first. So whatever was the trigger, whatever data was there, comes into the function as the event, uh, and then you do whatever it is you need to do with the event. And sometimes a context is passed as well. Uh, this is just a simple JSON file for testing, and uh, this is that ngrams database. 
And what's important here is that that's a SQLite database. And that SQLite database actually gets packaged up with the function and uploaded. So the function never has to reach out outside to the internet or anything to a database. It's all right there, because I can do that. I can upload that, that SQLite database, which is really nice. So let's take a look at how that works. So we do our Kappa deploy. So we've written the code. It deploys out. And you'll notice that it's creating the policies. It's creating the role. And you see how it paused on creating function, because what it was actually doing was zipping everything up, uploading it to S3, calling the right APIs to say, here's the function. So it was taking care of all of that in the background. And then we can invoke our tests. So we have that test JSON, and it just calls it out. And a lot of the frameworks work basically the same way. Uh, in Apex, you would uh, get your, your stats from a different call, but you can just tail that in another window. But they're all pretty much the same. And there we go. We've generated a bunch of ops-related words, like ops sender. That's a pretty good one. So if you're looking for a company name. Uh, and then let's say that I want more words. 10 isn't enough. I didn't get a good variety, whatever it is, right? So I just change my thing. And I say, I would like to see 20 words instead. So I'm going to invoke my test again. And I'm going to see what happens when I run it. And you'll notice that it's taking some time. And remember, our default timeout was three seconds. So this errored out because it took more than three seconds. So we got to fix that. Well, luckily, that's really easy to fix. We just pull up our YAML file, change our timeout. Let's give it 30 seconds to make sure that we've got plenty of time to run. Uh, and then I'm going to do a uh, deployment again. So we're going to deploy it out. And you'll see that it does all of its stuff. And then we're going to run our test again. Uh, and this time, it's going to take more than three seconds, but not much more. And then we're going to get our results. So obsessity, it's a good one. Uh, and what you'll notice here is when Kappa did its deployment, the only thing it do did was update the configuration. It was smart enough to know that the function didn't change, the roles didn't change, so it didn't have to do anything there. And all of the tooling frameworks are the same way. They're smart enough to know that there's only so much that needed to be changed, so the deployment was fairly quick. And you'll see here that our runtime duration was 4.2 seconds, which is why it timed out the first time and worked the second time. So now let's t uh, talk over here to Alexa for another demo. Alexa, ask talk demo hi. What is the name of this session? What is Lambda? Okay, so how did I, oh, stop. No, I said st <laughs> stop. All right, excellent. So how did I do that? <clears throat> First, I had to use the Alexa console. So you define a couple of uh, intents. You tell it what you wanted to talk about. Uh, if you look in the middle there, you'll see list of services. So when you're defining a custom uh, slot variable is what they're called. When you want it to look for a particular word in a sentence, uh, you have to tell it what words to look for. Uh, so you'll see Lambda in there, and you'll see Kinesis in there, because I'm going to mention that in a second. Uh, and then down at the bottom, you give it some sample utterances, which teach it what to do. And then this is what an Apex deployment looks like. You'll notice that it's extremely similar to a Kappa deployment. 
<clears throat> but uh, basically, this is the Apex, this is how it's smoother. It has an initialization. So you don't even have to put your code in the right place first. You just say initialize a project, and, all, and it takes care of it all for you. It's created the file, it's created the IAM roles, it's created the directory structure for you, it's created that a test function, a hello world. So all I did was drop in a replacement for hello world, and then I do a deploy, and it deploys out my function, and I'm all set. So Alexa, ask talk demo, tell me about Kinesis. Okay, so we didn't write the code for that yet. It didn't work. Uh, one thing to, that's really important, by the way, is that when you are doing these uh, Lambda functions, you need to go to that third tab, the triggers tab, and make sure you set the Alexa skills kit. Otherwise, your tests are gonna work perfectly, but your, your device will never actually talk to your, your Lambda. This is what actually took me the longest in putting this entire demo together, was remembering that. So <laughs> the whole thing took me like, 40 minutes to put together and 20 of it was figuring out why it wasn't working. So let's go and fix, fix our problem. Uh, we'll go and edit the function, and I'll tell you more about this in a second. I've cheated and I've already written the code, which is a single line in an array, or uh, in a hash, I mean. Uh, so I've now added the ability to understand that. I run my deployment. It takes a little while to update the function because it's got to zip it back up and sometimes there's a little bit of lag with S3 or whatever. Uh, and that's it, now we're done. So now we say, Alexa, ask talk demo, what's up? <laughs> Alexa, ask talk demo, tell me about Amazon Kinesis. <laughs> Yes, you do. Tell me about Amazon Kinesis. There we go. Okay. So as you can see, she doesn't understand English quite so well yet, but uh, the code was all there. Okay. You can turn Alexa down now. Thank you. Bye, Alexa. <laughs> all right. So we're all good there. This is what you get for doing live demos with Alexa. So let's talk about the code. What does that code look like? Uh, at the top, we've got our imports. Uh, we've got our intent definitions. Uh, so uh, there's some default intents that all the lambdas are supposed to support, like stop and continue and things like that. And then we've got uh, a, the thing to do when it's first launched, where it says hello, and uh, a couple of different, uh, basically all the different intents and what to do with them. And then this is pretty much the bulk of the program. So this is handling all the different intents. So there you can see where I said stop and it said thank you for coming. Uh, you can say uh, I didn't even do the uh, the welcome one that says you hope you're learning a lot today. Uh, and uh, all the different functionality there. Uh, and then this is the more advanced function, the one that has the slots. Well, this is the service name one where I asked it about Lambda and Kinesis. Uh, and so this is where you take the slot data that's passed to you and you do something with the slot data. But it's all fairly simple to do. And then you do this build speech response at the end. So you just put it all together and spit it back out. Uh, and I'm actually gonna put this code up on uh, GitHub uh, sometime maybe today or tomorrow. So you can, you can download it and play with it all. Uh, you can Google around for some basic Alexa demos and find all of this. Most of this code is actually really standard 
and the same from function to function. <clears throat> and here's some example of that logging. So as I was saying those words, I was generating logs, and it was saying, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's how long it took, how much you got charged. Uh, if you got an error, it'll put the stack trace into your CloudWatch logs. You can output using the built-in logging of Python or whatever your favorite language is to put log entries here. Uh, the only major downside using CloudWatch logs is that there's a little bit of a delay. So sometimes you might get an error and then you have to wait 20, 30 seconds for it to show up in the log, uh, which can be a little frustrating when you're trying to rapidly debug, but that's about it. The important point here is that I went from the conception of this demo to prod in, in just minutes. Like I said, it only took about 40 minutes and 20 of that was figuring out that I forgot to press that one button. So it's really quick to deploy these skills. Uh, now that you all have your Echo Dots, you can all go back home and try deploying these skills if you want. And uh, so let's, let's dive a little deeper into, uh, this is an, a Kappa config again. So you'll notice that I have dev and prod. Uh, Apex works the same way where you can define different environments. Uh, Apex is actually really nice. You can define every function can have its own config that supersedes the master config. Uh, so you can have new functionality that you mark as dev until it's prod or whatever you want to do. Uh, <clears throat> here is a, a code base. This is actually the code base for my company. So it's a little bit more advanced, a little bit more in depth. Uh, you've got the Kappa YAML file with each function. So each directory repre represents a different Lambda function within the product. Uh, each one has its own config file. Uh, there, I didn't talk about these JSON files, but these are basically uh, environment configurations. So if it's dev, use this one. If it's prod, use this one. Uh, we've got the requirements.txt, which is a Python-specific thing that tells it which libraries to use, but the other languages have similar stuff. The nice thing about having this here is you can have your deployment tooling, like Apex, automatically uh, build, uh, download and get the requirements and libraries to make sure that you have the correct ones, the latest ones, whatever is necessary. And then these are the actual artifacts that are generated. So these are the zip files that are actually being uploaded to S3. Uh, and so they're here. You can unzip them. You can inspect them. You can modify them if you want to, although that's probably not a good idea. Uh, but you can do whatever you need to. So if you're debugging, whatever, you can actually look at those zip files. And then here's a, another look at that directory structure. And you'll notice that those first top functions there are much, much bigger than the rest. And the reason for that is because they have their own libraries in them. And this gets to one of sort of the problems that we still have to deal with, which is if you want a particular library for multiple functions, you have to include it in each function. So you're, you're, there's some duplication there. You're uploading the same libraries over and over. There's a couple of workarounds to that. Uh, one of them is if you're really uh, uploading the same library often, you could potentially create a separate Lambda function that just does whatever that library does. But then there's a whole host of other issues with that if it's like a, you know, a very language-specific library or doesn't work well with a JSON API or whatever. So it's still a problem, something we still have to deal with uh, because it does count against your quota multiple times. Uh, I'm sure they'll eventually have some solution to that, though. So really, the whole point of all of this is that it's really easy to get these things up and running quickly. It's really easy to get all of this deployment. Hopefully, you got a little bit out of those demos to see how easy it is, and, and you'll go home and try it yourself with your Echoes. And what's really nice about Lambda is that it basically lets you manage your infrastructure and your code in the same place. 
Now, your DevOps engineers, again, are going to hate this because it means that the developers are now managing the infrastructure, but it actually works out pretty well, especially if you make them responsible for answering the pages in the middle of the night. So let's talk about some tips and tricks for Lambda, some things that I've learned over time. So a lot of these tips are actually just distributed systems tips, uh, because like I mentioned before, basically uh, Lambda and serverless exacerbates all of your distributed systems problems. So you need to really think about these distributed systems issues. Uh, so the first one is try to use immutable data whenever you can. A lot of people don't think about it, but if you just step back and think, is there a way for me to write this code so that I don't have to keep updating something and instead can keep more of a time series of this happened, this happened, this happened, so that then you can do a pending only and you don't have to change data. Because every time you change data, you have to worry about synchronization. So if you can write your code without changing data, then you eliminate that, that hassle. Obviously, it doesn't work everywhere, but it can work in more places than a lot of people realize. And the reason this is important is because uh, moving data around is the biggest cost your distributed system will incur. And not just monetary cost, but complexity cost and time cost as well. But you need to move data around for reliability, right? Especially if you're mutating data. You've got to update all your caches and invalidate them and so on and so forth. So it's a trade-off between reliability uh, and your cost of moving data around. And you have to figure out what that cost balance is. But there, one of the solutions is to use queues as much as possible. And you can do this when you're doing Lambda. You can put uh, into a queue and then read from a queue. Uh, and now with step functions, they take care of a lot of that for you, which is awesome. Uh, you can, it can take care of a lot of the make sure this gets run and this data gets over here. So uh, step functions is sort of a form of queues. Uh, kind of applies the same. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically queue anything when you're writing to a data store. So don't just write to your data store. Put it into a queue to write to your data store. This will give you a nice little buffer, and it gives you great insight because you can see the write volume and if your data store is keeping up and so on. Although one interesting thing is this is a typical what's my queue depth monitor, right? If you have a queue, you probably have a graph that shows you how many items are in the queue. But my question to you is at, second, at 12 seconds, what happened? You can't tell, right? You have no idea if, if a lot of stuff just came in or if your processor slowed down. So I, I want to introduce you to the concept or remind you, if you already know, of a cumulative flow diagram. I think these are really important. What this tells you is how many things come in and leave separately. So now you can see at second 12 exactly what happened. You know that your processor slowed down because things were not departing as quickly as they were arriving. <clears throat> so if you aren't using these, look it up, cumulative flow diagram, big fan. Another, uh, some other important tips, so limit your function size. Uh, so implementation details are supposed to be hidden, but in reality, something has to start up and load at least the first time you run that function. Uh, and so remember that uh, the function, uh, or uh, it's, it's basically a container, right? So they're spinning up a container for you to run this function. Uh, so it's going to take a little while. If you're using Python or Node or something, it'll take like a second. If you're using Java, it could take like 15 seconds because the whole JVM has to start up every time. Uh, so this is a much bigger problem with JVM-based languages. But uh, it, it's, it, it's important to try to limit that so that it's, you can get your startup time down. 
Uh, and then remember that execution is asynchronous, unless, of course, you're using the step functions. Uh, but your functions will run in parallel. So it's important to remember because some people think that if they call out to two, they're going to run in series, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, and if you call one to the next, they might the second one might actually finish first. Uh, and then don't assume that that function container is going to be there. So on the back end, that, that container will stick around for a while. So subsequent requests to the same function will call the same container sometimes. So if you know this, you can take advantage of it. You can do something like if you had to download a big chunk of data, put it into in memory or a global variable or something like that, and then go and the next time you run your code, see if that variable is already populated. Because if you've got a container reuse, it might already be there, and it'll save you some execution time of going out and getting that data again. Uh, set up alarms and all your CloudWatch metrics. So they give you a bunch of CloudWatch metrics. It's really important to look at the alarms, especially the error graph. Uh, we, we were running without the alarms, and all of a sudden, I just happened to go look at the graphs and saw that one of the error graphs is off the charts. Uh, so just set up those alarms right away, and you'll be much happier. Uh, avoid uh, throttling. So um, when Lambdas call directly to other services, they're going to be throttled the same way that any, like, EC2 is or whatever. But one little tri trick is that SNS, SQS, they have different limits to, to calling these same uh, services. So if you push it through one of Amazon's queuing systems, then you get to take advantage of some higher limits. Uh, and then beware of infinite loops. So this, this one bit us. Uh, you can have a Lambda function call another Lambda function. And if that second one calls back to the first one, then you're having a bad time. I, I don't have enough money to find out what happens if you let it just keep going forever, but I assume that it's bad because your pocketbook is not going to like you. Uh, this happened to us. We got an infinite loop. We called the function. It just was never returning. We didn't really know why. Looked in the CloudWatch graphs and saw the, the total counts just going up and up and up. We solved it by just redeploying uh, one of the functions without the loop. Uh, and fix the bug. But uh, if you don't notice, it can get in real trouble, especially if it's like a latent bug that happens later. So uh, one way to avoid the infinite loops is to pass a call stack when you're calling one lambda to the next, and then check to see if you, you're, you are in your own call stack, basically. Uh, that's one of the best ways so far that I've found to avoid that problem. Uh, you need to store your data properly. So lambda forces you into this habit. If you're building microservices on EC2, maybe you might get lazy and put a little bit of data on the local instance and, and you know, hope no one notices or hope it doesn't go away. You can't do that with lambdas. Lambdas do have that local temp scratch space, uh, which does last from container to container, by the way. So you can use it to take advantage of that, but don't store any important data there because it could go away at any time. So it's great for temp, but really you have to make sure that you're putting everything off of your Lambda functions. And then there's function scheduling. So I mentioned that there's the startup time, right? And this is a known problem with Lambda. It's the warm-up time problem. The first time the function is called, it's going to take a little while to return. It might even time out. So you, sometimes, if, if you have even moderate traffic, this won't happen because there'll constantly be a container there that's already servicing your, your, your requests. But if you have a really low traffic function, something that maybe doesn't get called very often, but you need it to be very responsive when it does get called, uh, you can poke it to keep it warm. So every minute or whatever, you just call that function, 
and then it'll always be running in some container. Uh, if you're going to do that, make sure you give it some sort of option or endpoint to call that's very, very fast so that you don't get billed a lot, so that you can keep your execution time under 100 milliseconds for your, your, your health check, basically. Uh, and uh, one thing that you cannot do is you cannot trigger lambdas off of uh, SQS queues, so, uh, but you can pull them. So you can set up a timer that runs a function that pulls your queue every minute. Uh, and then, or you can use DynamoDB as your queue, which has its pros and cons of using a database as a queue. But since you can trigger off of DynamoDB entries, that is one workaround for not being able to trigger on queues. Uh, if you need a more granular timer than one minute, say you want to pull your queue every five seconds, what you can do is schedule a timer to run a function that calls, uh, that basically has its own timer built in. So it just sits in a loop calling every five seconds for a minute and then shuts itself down, or for 90 seconds and shuts itself down, so you get some nice overlap going. Uh, and then uh, you can actually get more timers by sort of fanning this out, one calling the next, calling the next. Uh, some other really important thing is function versioning. So there's versioning built in. Uh, most of the deployment tools have it. If you noticed, when I did my Apex deploy, it said the version number right next to it. Uh, so using versions is really important uh, because you can roll back very easily this way. If you have a version that's known good, you can roll back to it very easily by just pointing the function alias back to that particular version. Uh, you can use it for uh, traffic shaping. So if you, you, one way to do traffic shaping is to have sort of a traffic cop function, uh, an outbound caller, if you will. So when you want to call out to another Lambda, instead of calling directly to it, you call to your service that says, uh, you know, should this user go to version 20 or 21, or what percent should go here, if you want to do uh, phase deployment or anything like that. Uh, and you can also use it to, if you need to version lock. So maybe you have an old client that must stick to an old version of your code. You can have them point directly to an ARN for that particular version instead of the current alias. So it's very powerful. It lets you do a lot of different, lets you run a lot of your functions next to each other, dev, prod. So that's kind of nice. As I mentioned before, there's every Lambda runs in a VPC. Uh, and it's always on, but by default, it's just a VPC with same defaults and internet access. Uh, if you add it to your VPC, it will be able to access all of your private resources, but it will no longer have internet access. Uh, even if your security rules allow it to have internet access, it still won't have internet access uh, unless you have the managed NAT. Even if you have an internet gateway, it still won't work. You must have the managed NAT running for your Lambda in your private VPC to get internet access. Uh, some problems that people tend to run into, uh, ENI, uh, ENI exhaustion. So every Lambda that runs concurrently is going to get its own ENI, uh, which means that you need to have enough in the pool to make sure that they can all run simultaneously. Uh, this is if you're managing yourself uh, and putting it in your own VPC. Uh, so you've got to make sure you have enough IPs in your pool to do that and enough per AZ. So by default, Lambda tries to do the right thing by balancing your Lambda functions equally across as many availability zones as there are in that region. But if you don't have enough IPs in one particular zone, it's just going to skip it. So you're going to lose out on some reliability and redundancy if you don't have that. 
Uh, and then uh, there's some practices around API Gateway, uh, using the mock integrations, uh, combining with Cognito, Amazon Cognito, for uh, end user control, control and access, um, mapping templates, and then Swagger. So you can export your API Gateway config into Swagger. You can also import it from Swagger. So if you are hardcore and know Swagger, you can actually build your API that way. You can actually build tools that look at your Lambda functions and automatically build your API gateway configuration as well, and some of them already do that. Uh, but even if you're just manually defining your configuration, it's a really good idea to save it once you're done so that you can redeploy it if something happens, uh, and so to make sure to keep that Swagger template up to date. Or to go cross-account sharing or whatever. Uh, so we've mentioned the, the versions, the consumable names, things like that. Uh, naming conventions that are, make it really easy to tell what's what, that's consumable, uh, so you can, consumable by a human, so a human can look at that function and know this is dev, this is prod, this is current, etc. cetera. Uh, use IAM whenever you can, so you can build your Lambda function to have auth in it. The SDK is right there, but if you use IAM, it's gonna be better because then it's all unified. Uh, make sure you have least privileged in your IAM roles. So uh, if you're using the tooling, they're gonna do this for you automatically, but if you decide to do it yourself, then something to keep in mind. Uh, externalize your configuration, so you can use Dynamo. Uh, recently they announced that they actually have a service that'll help store your configuration. Uh, and then uh, you know, be aware of throttling, and uh, if you're gonna do something big and massive, parallel, let Amazon know so they don't throttle you, so they can give you more resources. So that's all I have. I got about 10 minutes left for questions, if anybody has any. I know that a lot of you probably want to run off to another session, so uh, if you have questions, otherwise, thank you.